everyone. Thank you guys for watching. My name is Lizzie Marbach. I'm the Director of Communications for Ohio Right to Life, and this is our first revamped episode of the Ohio Right to Life podcast. I'm very happy to have my friend and Christian writer and commentator Samuel Say, uh, also known as Slow to Write, on the show today. And we wanted to discuss all things abortion that are happening here in Ohio, as well as throughout the nation, and what we can do moving forward. So Samuel, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I am well acquainted with your work, but would you mind uh, introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about who you are and why you care about the pro-life movement and message? Yeah. Well, first, thank you for making me uh, the first guest of the revamped edition of the, the podcast. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, yeah. So I was born in Ghana, West Africa. Um, that is my home nation. Well, kind of, um, uh, actually. But yeah, I was born in you know Ghana, West Africa, raised by a single, mo- a single mother. Uh, I was born in Accra, which is the capital city of Ghana. Uh, I, I grew up there. I grew up in the church. Um, I was originally a charismatic Assemblies of God, which is like Hillsong type of denomination. Um, that was my background. Um, Same. <laughs> really? Well, I mean, you're charismatic, but were you in Assemblies of God as well, too? I, yeah, technically, they. my old church was Assemblies of God. Okay. Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, we have a lot in yeah. common. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I already, I already knew that, but I didn't know that you were from that particular denomination, too, or at least tied to that denomination. Um, but... Yeah, then when I was 10 years old, um, we moved to uh, Canada. Um, that's why I say that Ghana is not really my home nation. Um, uh, my culture is still very much Ghanaian, but I really grew up in Canada. Canada really is my home. Um, that's where uh, my, my my family is still there. I just moved from Canada uh, last year to marry my wife, uh, who is in Ohio. And that's how you and I got connected uh, through Ohio. So um, I now live in Marion, uh, which is in central uh, Ohio, about an hour north of Columbus. But in Canada, that's where I, um, you know, I became a Christian when I was 19 in Canada um, in, an, in a charismatic church. But then I ended up uh, reforming in my theology. I became a Reformed Baptist and I had a huge desire for theology. I mentioned all that because that really is what led me directly into the pro-life movement. Now, before that, as I mentioned before, I was raised by a single mother. My father left my mom when she was still pregnant with me. And knowing that, obviously, that's going to make me, at the very least, um, sympathetic to the pro-life issue. But then in, when I was 18, a year before I became a Christian, I received a maybe the most consequential phone call in my life where one of my friends, um, a woman, called me saying, Sam, what would you say to a girl considering an abortion? Now, her and I, friends, and my wife will tell you, I ask a lot of random questions. Uh, It can get annoying. (laughs) I ask random (laughs) questions, hypothetical questions, and this friend was similar too. So I thought she was just asking me a question, uh, a, a random hypothetical question. I had no idea that I had an opportunity to save a life because she was she herself was pregnant. She was really asking that uh, because she was trying to um, covertly seek help. Um, but I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know anything about abortion. And I simply said, I don't know. Well, I didn't hear anything about that 
um, until a year later where she also became a Christian and she was sharing her testimony. And she mentioned that a year before she had an abortion. And I realized that it was just days after she asked me that question um, or after she um, gave me that phone call. And I was devastated at the time. Um, I realized that, again, I had an opportunity to help her and to save her child. And my ignorance um, played a role in that baby um, not being saved or not being alive uh, this day. So that also had a big impact on me moving forward. But it really wasn't until after I became a Christian um, when I eventually started, and I created my blog, slowtowrite.com, as you mentioned earlier. And my blog really deals with all Christian issues. But at the time, particularly this is back in 2015 when I created my blog, it was really an answer to Black Lives Matter. I was trying to explain why I hated Black Lives Matter as an organization, that they were, they did not, they were, they had anti-Christian views, anti-Christ views. They were, um, they were promoting racism against white people. They were really supporting injustice with socialism and communism, as they call themselves trained Marxists. They hate the nuclear family. They say they really want to, you know, oppose that with their uh, Marxist views or postmodern views. But then also they're especially pro-abortion. Um, they are very close. They have very close ties to all the pro-abortion lobbyist groups, including, of course, Black Lives Matter. Uh, I think actually Black Lives Matter received an award from Planned Parenthood. That's just to show how radically pro-abortion they are. But the more I wrote about Black Lives Matter, the more I realized how important, um, not especially because of my own history with it, but also just reading the numbers because I had never really studied the numbers before. And as I was reading the numbers, as I was writing against Black Lives Matter, I realized, wait a minute, I'm writing about these issues, but what am I doing about this? And then in 2018, I had a great opportunity to join a summer internship uh, with CCBR, uh, which is a pro-life group um, in, in Canada. Um, they're part of the the um, the prophetic arm in terms of the or the educational arm as my, some might know in terms of being able to change the culture's views on abortion and I joined that internship and I had that friend of mine who had called me years ago in mind and I said to myself that I wanted to be able to change you know at least thirty minds on abortion and by the end of the summer it was seventy three people that I had who had told me after talking to them about the abortion these are people who were pro abortion and after I spoke to them. At least seventy-three people. At least seventy-three uh, people told me that they were pro-abortion, but through talking to me, they had become pro-life. And I realized that I seemingly had a skill in being able to address this issue. So then I joined the group uh, full-time um, for two or three years. I'm forgetting how long it's been now. For two or three years, and I only left because, of course, as I said, I left Canada. I left Toronto, Canada, to come to Ohio, and. Um, yeah, so that's my story when it comes to um, my personal life, I suppose, and also my involvement with the uh, pro-life uh, movement. Yeah, I that's awesome. And there's there's so many different uh, points of your story that we could kind of really focus in on. Uh, one of the funny things, like you said, we do have a, a lot of similarities. Um, I grew up uh, Pentecostal and Assemblies of God, and I now I am a Reformed Baptist as well. And I would agree with you uh, that the more maturity I came in my faith and the more, you know, I began to read the Bible and really 
understand his word, the more convicted I became about the issue uh, about this issue of abortion. And I mean, growing up, I was always very passionate about abortion. Um, my church spoke about it very clearly, um, as as well as my parents spoke about it very clearly. But I I didn't really have that fire and passion until. I really had that fire and passion for my creator, for God, for Jesus. And so one of the aspects of the pro-life movement, um, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but obviously it's been a year um, after Roe versus Wade has been overturned with the historic Dobbs decision that brought the issue uh, back to the hands of the people. It made it so that our elected officials are able to actually write pro-life laws to actually protect those that are in the womb. But the question still remains is where do we go from here? I find that many pro-lifers in the movement are kind of confused about, okay, what are our next steps? Because for so long, our biggest focus was let's get Roe overturned. But we never really um, focused on how do we change the culture at the same time? I think that uh, there there definitely were some people who focused on that, but I think that as a movement, uh, we were so closed in on getting Roe versus Wade overturned, which was amazing. I think that in some ways we also kind of forgot to combat the culture and, and win the culture over on the issue. So how do you uh, suggest that we move forward? What do you see that path forward looking like? Yeah, that's a great question. First, I, you know, just to, um, explain the context of how I'm seeing things. Um, Roe v. Wade being overturned last year, I had been in America, because again, I'm from Canada. Um, I had been in America for maybe three or four months when that happened. And I, per I actually was speaking at a pro-life event that very day, and I'll never forget that day. Um, filled with emotion, filled with joy, being around pro-life people. I thank God for that blessing of not just being at home, you know, and, you know, just being able to be with like-minded people who have been fighting on this issue, many of them their entire lives was a beautiful moment that I'll never forget. But as a Canadian, I saw it a bit differently. I was filled with joy. My wife, <laughs> my wife says that, because um, I was in the washroom getting ready, um, you know, I'm trying to beautify myself a little bit uh, for the event. And um, as I was getting ready, um, I think I was like trimming my beard or something. And my wife gets to me with a big smile on her face. And she says, have you heard? I'm like, what are you talking about? She says, it's been overturned. And I was, and I'm not, I'm a big guy. I'm a big man. So I try hard not to move around too much. I don't, I don't want to cause an <laughs> earthquake, but I was jumping around. So just with so much joy. And then she said to me, I'll never forget. She said, I was I was happier in that moment than I was when we got married. I know she wasn't saying it to complain. She was just saying that I'm, you know, I'm I'm I can be I can look like I'm a pretty kind of I think easygoing kind of guy. I don't um, I'm not I can I can I'm sometimes not too expressive. Uh, so at the wedding, I was very happy. I think I even cried at the wedding too. So, you know, so I was, I, 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 you know, I was clearly very happy when we got married, but I was just so shocked that it, it finally happened and for so much joy that I just had to let it out in that way. But I mentioned that because as a Canadian, we are coming from a context where 
abortion is completely legal at all stages in pregnancy, completely. Um, we have, we can't even, we right now, something like a Roe v. Wade happening, a, a legal uh, win like that happening in Canada is a dream. We believe it will happen one day, but it's a dream. But I mentioned that to say there's nothing wrong with being elated years, you know, a year later about Roe v. Wade being overturned. It's something to be completely um, joyful about. It's one of the greatest days in American history when it was over, was overturned. And yet, because of that, we can get complacent. Uh, because it came as such a big surprise. Um, not that we weren't hoping for that or praying for that, but if I'm being honest, I didn't think it would happen so soon. So I think in many ways, it's caught many of us un a little bit unprepared for, well, what does life after Roe v. Wade look like for the pro-life movement? Because it, yeah. I think for many of us anyways, it happened sooner than we expected. So um, I think it's natural then for us to be a bit unsure about what do we do or, to be, or for there to be some confusion. As you said, we had focused so much on Roe v. Wade that in some ways we were unprepared for life after Roe v. Wade. So with all that being said, I think one of the concerns that I have is, you know, I, I've said this many times before that, you know, being a, a huge fan of all sports, you're, you're always most dangerous. This is what we say in sports. You're always most vulnerable when you are winning um, at a game because you can get complacent, you can get satisfied. And I think Roe v. Wade being such a huge win, we have the, the temptation of being satisfied with that and not being as aware or as attentive as we should be about all the things that's happening across the states. Some states have gotten more radical with their abortion law since Roe v. Wade, because it's now much more of a local battle that we need to be aware of. So to your question of, um, I think, sorry, I think the question was, what do we do now? Is that correct? Yeah, how do we move forward and, and how do we ensure that we're still effective in what we're marching towards? Yes, I think I mentioned the educational arm of the pro-life movement. So there are three arms in the pro-life movement. There's the political arm, the pastoral arm, and the prophetical, the educational arm. The pastoral arm would be the um, pregnancy care centers, right? And then the political arm would be groups like um, Ohio Right to Life and other um, other groups. And then, of course, you have groups like Created Equal or in Canada, CCBR or here, CBR, the American version of the group that I was in in Canada, where they're trying to change the culture's perspective on these issues. I think more than ever, because we were so focused on Roe v. Wade, a lot of us were paying more attention to the political arm and that is, that's, that's necessary. We can't do anything without changing the laws, right? But I think more than ever now, the, the um, pastoral arm, the pregnancy care centers across the US need more help now than ever, because now you have more women who are going to need the church or pro-life people to help them. So that's instrumental. We also, of course, need to remember that the past, the the uh, the politics of abortion is not over. In fact, in many ways now, I think we especially need to start looking into the loopholes that a lot of states have, right? Even here in Ohio, we need to be looking at something like, for example, um, what's happening here in Ohio with the ballot initiative, right? Where the uh, abortion industry is trying to change the constitution 
um, to enshrine abortion as a um, as a as a right um, in the state. And I think talking to people about it, I don't I don't think the average conservative or Republican voter in in Ohio is aware of that. Maybe I'm wrong, but so far talking to a lot of people, I know some are aware, but many more are not. So we need to bring more awareness to this issue. And also, we also know that while we rejoice and we've, we've, we've been returned in some states, um, almost completely banning abortion, you still have abortion pills being readily available to people. And I think we need to start looking into that issue as well too, because for so long we've been focusing on abortions happening in you know through Planned Parenthood, but of course now people can have an abortion at home more than ever before. Yeah, no, and that's such an important topic to address. And I think that it's something that, you know, 50 years ago when the movement began, we didn't even think about that being an issue. Whereas now over 50% of abortions that are happening are done by the pill. Yeah. Um, and with telemedicine and with websites like Plan C or Aid Access, where you can literally uh, order an abortion pill from Mexico, yeah. how how can we even work towards combating that? Obviously, there's a lot of different layers there, but what would you suggest our plan B and even beginning to combat the abortion pill and the issues that come from that? Yeah, that's that's a... That's a difficult question because we, as you just said, this is a new, relatively new issue for us, right? Um, that the abortion pill has been around, forgetting for how many years now, but I think it's been five to 10 years, roughly, that it's been on the market. It could be longer than that. I'm not quite sure. Um, and because of that, we now need to respond to that. It seems that our politicians do not want to touch it. Um, and this is what I meant before about um, complacency or satisfaction with what we've been overturned, that you know, we are, that it, it focuses primarily on not really banning. So for example, in Ohio, we, re, we rejoice in the heartbeat bill, but that's dealing with abortions happening at so-called clinics, not abortion period, right? So we need to start really um, getting our politicians to realize that we can't just say abortion is wrong if it happens at a clinic or a, yeah. a so-called clinic but then it's okay if it happens at uh, you know at home right through the pill. I mean, it's it's like for example with um, with uh, slavery, right? We can't say in the same way that slavery is okay if it's happening, you know, in on, on the field. But if you have like house slaves, that's okay, right? If slavery is wrong, it's wrong everywhere. If abortion is wrong, it's wrong no matter how it's it's done. So we need to really put in pressure on our politicians to be more consistent. Right, because you can't say that we've eliminated almost all abortions when you just when you when then then sorry what you really mean is eliminating uh, most abortions in clinics. While as you said, the numbers are staggering, right? Where half of abortions are happening in um, you know through the abortion pill, and it's going to get even worse now as of course we eliminate access to abortion in clinics. Yeah, no, and one. Uh point to mention as well as if you look at a lot of the pro-life states who had victories where they were able to end all abortion legally in abortion clinics, a state like Texas or Oklahoma or any other pro-life state that was able to end abortion from conception at abortion clinics. If you look at the numbers for the abortion pills that are being ordered from illegal websites, where they're shipping them in from Mexico, those numbers are actually rising. And so there, it 
it definitely is something that uh, we need to bring our attention to. And it's something that we, we have to be consistent in, like you said, in all things. Um, with that, moving, moving forward. So one of the things that I'm very passionate about in the pro-life movement is getting the church involved. Uh, one of the amazing things joining the pro-life movement, I'm sure you see it too, is that, you know, our Catholic friends have done an amazing job at really picking up the mantle, leading on this cause, talking about it in churches, uh, talking a, a, about it in their political circles. Whereas Protestant evangelicals, I I feel like there's just something missing there. And it it's it's something that needs to be addressed because when you look at our numbers, uh, yeah. no other voting demographic even comes close yeah. to Protestant evangelicals voting pro-life. We vote yeah. pro-life 80% of the time. We are, we are the highest demographic yeah. for voting pro-life. But yet when you look at the movement and when you look at activism, or if you just walk into a church, you're rarely seeing abortion spoken about. You're, you're rarely seeing any kind of churches welcome the pro-life movement in so what what advice do you have to getting the churches involved and getting protestants to not only vote pro-life that's obviously very important um, but also getting active in the movement it's a great question um to be honest this is this is one of the most shameful things about our protestant movement um in um, in our time that we like to do the easy things. Um, voting is a great thing. Voting shapes laws, right? Roe v. Wade could not be overturned if uh, Protestants and conservatives did not vote uh, for pro-life politicians. So voting is not insignificant. It's, in, it's crucial. But it is also easier than voting well while also going out to the streets while petitioning, while putting politicians that we've voted for to do their jobs, to be, look, obviously you and I are pro-life activists, but even, but not everyone has to be an activist necessarily, right? In terms of full-time work or even part-time, but even volunteering, actively being involved in your church. You know, one of the things that I say to people all the time, and it shocks them, and I'm surprised it shocks them, but there was a poll, I think from Lifeway, um, maybe I'm, I'm forgetting exactly which, I think it's Lifeway, but I'm forgetting which exactly uh, group it was. They did a study and it showed that, um, it showed that 20% of women who have abortions go to church at least once a week, 20%. 35% go to church at least once a month. If you calculate Right. So before we wait, there were a million abortions happening roughly in the nation. That means that 200,000 babies were killed by women who go to church at least once a week, a year. 200,000. People are shocked when they hear that, but they shouldn't be. Abortion is not just an issue in our culture. It's also in our churches. And that's in part because pastors and Christians, parents, are not addressing the issue. They think, again, it's just something that unbelievers are doing. But you have a lot of professing Christians 
and sometimes perhaps even genuine Christians, because Christians can sin. David, what did David do? David murdered someone because he wanted to cover up his sin. Yeah. And sometimes Christians, genuine Christians, might murder their children because they want to cover up their sin. So if we don't address this issue as Protestants, it will keep happening where, where you're going to have um, a lot of women and, and their, and their uh, male partners walking out of church to walk directly into plant parenthood. 200,000 babies, again, of babies who are in church essentially every, for every week at some points then will end up being thrown in the garbage at Planned Parenthood. And because of that, it, it's disturbing, it's shameful that we are not addressing the, this issue. We absolutely need to. Now to get to uh, um, your question, what do we do about it? Frankly, it is to preach the word. It's simply that. The Bible says, preach the word in season or out of season, even if it's going to offend. And I've had, I've, I mean, I've spoken at many, you know, churches before where I've had women who were post-abortive and I don't lie to them. I, I addressed the, the nature of abortion in frank ways, but then I also give them the gospel in light of that. Yeah. So we need to preach the word, even if it's going to offend post-abortive women. In fact, since it's a sin, we expect that sinners should be offended. Right? And th that way they can hopefully be convicted and repent over their sins. But then also that you could save lives by doing so, because every woman at a church, like every woman anywhere, can be pre-abortive, that they might be tempted one day to have an abortion. Yeah. And we also preach the word to encourage people to not just be hearers of the word, but, but to be doers, to live worthy of the gospel. Um, I spoke at a, um, uh, to a youth uh, at a church in Kentucky uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was just going through Philippians and what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And it, it, includes, it includes making sure that we fight for justice, that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And as Protestants, it's in our name. If we are not protesting issues that the Lord cares about, then we are not really being Protestants. If we don't want reformation in our culture on this issue, then we are not being like our, our reformed forefathers. So it's, it's extremely important that we preach the word, that we tell people what is happening in our culture and what's happening in the church as well. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, you pretty much encapsulated everything that, that I'm feeling as well. And it is extremely frustrating because I'll go to these churches and just ask if I can drop off literature about what's yeah. happening. And they just don't want to touch the issue with the 10 foot pole. And I think that a yeah. huge part of that is because they know that they have post-abortive women yes. in their pews. They yeah. know that, which makes yeah. them fearful of even mentioning the issue. But yeah. what that does by ignoring it is it either tells those that are in the pew that uh, abortion is not serious. It's not a sin. Don't, don't worry about it. That's just between you. Keep it private. Or it's robbing them of the forgiveness, telling Amen. them that it's so bad that you can't even be forgiven. Just keep it to yourself because we don't want to talk about it. Neither one of those options 
uplift the truth or point them to God or point them to any kind of restoration and healing that only the gospel can give them. And it, so we, we just, we can't be silent anymore on it. We cannot be the silent majority. And I think that one of the uh, benefits to how insane our society has become is it, it's really woken up a lot of Christians that, hey, this silent majority business that we've been doing for the past 50 years it's gotten us to a place that is not good. This is this yeah. is not the place that we want to be. We can no longer just live and let live. We we have to preach the word in season yeah. and out of season, like you said. Um, and I... so, oh yeah. So right, sure. go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, you're you're fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if I could just say a couple more things. Um, speaking of shame, look, look, our Catholic friends. You know, we disagree with a lot of their, their theology, uh, to put it mildly. But, you know, it's interesting to me. As far as I know, I don't think they quite embrace critical race theory the way a lot of Protestant churches did or have. I say that because, you know, again, I know many Catholics have. Or I, what I mean is that, I guess, in their, in their, you know, at mass, as far as I know, I didn't see many of them teaching critical race theory, the way that a lot of churches were teaching critical race theory from the pulpit. I say that because it's quite shameful to me that over the last few years, we've seen so many, we've seen the SBC adopting critical race theory, so many other denominations and churches adopting critical race theory, making it a foundational issue for them. But then on the issue of abortion, they're completely quiet. And what's fascinating is if you really care about the issue of race, you, you would really care about the issue of abortion, yeah. right? which, is, which has killed about 20 million black babies uh, over the last 50, 50 years. So there's so much hypocrisy there where we are willing to embrace false doctrines on justice instead of a biblical view of justice when it comes to saving babies. The other thing is, you know, we, you know, the, the pro-life movement rightly calls ourselves the um, this generation's version of the abolitionists on, on slavery. We rightly say that. But what's fascinating is the people who led the abolitionist movement. Again, um, we it, it was not the Catholics; it was the Protestants. And I I say this because given our numbers, given our influence. And frankly, given the fact that we are the church, if we are not leading on this issue, we will not win this issue. The reason why slavery was ended is because the church played an essential role, being the light of the world, having the favor of God to address this issue. That's why the church won. That's why the abolitionists won. If Protestants do not play a leading role in this. We are not going to save babies. We are not going to abolish slavery or abor uh, abortion in this country. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I completely agree. And I actually saw, uh, just as a side note, there's a fascinating article. Um, William Wolf, I believe, is the one who wrote it on this exact topic where he says that if Protestants don't 
take up the mantle of life, we won't win this issue. And he basically expands on everything that you were just saying. And it's, it's so true. And I just, I have such a heart for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would actually be passionate about this issue. I just, I don't know how to wake them. That's, that has been the struggle is how do we get them to awaken to see the urgency in this and to see the demand that God, the the demand and command that God gives us to fight for life and to go out there and to stop people from being slaughtered. Uh, So with that, my next question uh, would be, how do we lead on this? Do we talk, do do we lead on this issue from the gospel? Uh, Do we continue to lead on it by, you know, making scientific or, or natural law arguments only while leaving God out of the conversation? Where do you think that the gospel comes into play with the pro-life movement? Mm. That's a great question. Um, we, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm laughing because you and I know that there are some debates in the um, Christian pro-life movement uh, on this with some abolitionists versus incrementalists and things like that. And to me, I, I don't think it's it, it should be that much of a debate, I think it's a lot simpler than a lot of us like to, um, you know, a lot of us are making it, which is, I don't think, okay, before I even get to that, I mentioned slavery again. I think reading Wilberforce, reading The Abolitionist, it is obvious that Christian view of, of humanity and society and justice played an essential role and the abolition uh, the abolitionist the abolition the abolition of slavery um but it didn't necessarily always start with it their theology their views were based on the bible but they didn't always start with this is what god has said therefore not always that was again their motive that was their that was their passion but they didn't always start that way so for me i guess what how i would answer it is this way we don't always have to lead with the gospel, but we should end with the gospel. So when I would do my pro-life work, I had no problem um, being like a doctor, so to speak, which is if I'm talking to people, my goal is to do my primary job, which is to save the baby, to save the babies, to and the slaughter. If I can change one person's mind on that, I've not failed before God. I've done my job. However, I should always hope and pray as I would for the opportunity to preach the gospel to the person I'm talking to. Because our goal as Christians, right? Because in a sense, we are Christians more than we are pro-life. Now, being a Christian means you are also pro-life. But primarily, our goal is not even just to save babies, which is essential, but it's also to save souls. So if I have an opportunity to save both the baby and the mom's soul, or perhaps even the baby's soul by uh, preaching the gospel to the mom, and I don't, I have failed. But if I don't have that opportunity, and I am trying to primarily save the, the, the baby's life. I've not failed either. 
So all that means is that I think we have to understand that our job primarily, and it depends on where we are, of course, uh, of course, it also depends on, again, the opportunities that we may have in front of us. But primarily, I don't have an issue with using natural law, using science yeah. to bring them to the truth, because all truth is God's truth, right? I mean, we see, we see, yeah. um, we see the Apostle Paul in, I think, it's, I think it's Act 17, where he is using the Greek philosophers and their their ideology to bring them to the gospel, right? Yeah. So if we're going to use science and natural law, human rights arguments to bring people to the truth and hopefully to the gospel as well too, I see nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Yeah, and it's so funny. I actually was going to bring that up uh, where Paul says, you know, when I'm speaking before Jews, I am a Jew. When I'm speaking before Greeks, I'm yeah. I'm a Greek. And so yeah. you have to be able to meet people where they are and then also boldly proclaim the truth once you get there. And so it's definitely not an excuse to forget the gospel and leave it out completely. We can never do that. That's mm-hmm. That would be unwise of us to do that. And I think that that's where a lot of Christians end up is they, they try to only appeal to natural law and science because they don't want to come off as that crazy kooky Christian that's trying to push the Bible on them. Um, And I think that it's absolutely a both and like you said, all truth is God's truth. And so whether it's science or natural law or philosophy, or you're quoting straight out of the Bible, it's all, it all belongs to God. Yes. And you know, I um, saw a devastating um, stat this morning that um yeah it just it was just heartbreaking to see this uh data that it was i think um 44 of high schoolers say that their life is not useful 44 percent higher than it's wow. ever been. um decades before it was around uh, I'm, I'm, i mean i don't know i think 10 15 maybe 20 percent now it's at 44 percent and in response to that, I shared a tweet saying, this is a consequence of saying that our society, that saying to children that their life is just an accident. Well, not even just their life, that their gender may be an accident. This is, is also ties into the pro-life movement yeah. or the abortion issue. If high schoolers, young adults, Gen Z people, believe their own lives are not useful. Why would they think a baby's life is useful? Why would they think this baby that they don't, they've not seen yet, they've not held yet. Why would they think this life who is in their minds an accident that they're not made in the image of God? Why would they think that their baby, their preborn baby is useful as well? So that goes back to what we're saying. We need theology. Because natural law will not explain why life is meaningful. Science will not explain why life is meaningful. But theology, biblical theology, the gospel, the truth that all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator who calls us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. If we do not acknowledge that, if we do not teach people that, yeah, everything is meaningless. 
Yeah, no, and I, uh, I think that that's really at the beginning of the conversation when I said that, you know, the pro-life movement was so focused on overturning Roe and they were so focused on the politics of it. Uh, one of the things in politics, there's a huge temptation to make pragmatism your God and to throw out any kind of long-term goal. Don't even think about the consequences of what you're saying five years from now. Just think about the next election. I think that one of the consequences of, of that is we took God out of the conversation and now we have an entire culture, like you said, that doesn't think that we're made in the image of, of God. They think that our ancestors are fish and they have no real foundation to even understand why it's wrong to kill a baby in the womb. We see so many people now even blatantly admitting, saying, I know it's a life. It, it, it is a life. Science proves that it's a life, but it, that's okay. We can still kill it. Um, and so we have to bring back in the foundation of theology, the foundation of Genesis 1. Uh, yeah. Everything that we're seeing in culture today really is grounded in Genesis 1. It's a fight against Genesis 1-1 that got, in the beginning God created. God is our creator. We're not the creator. We're the creation. Um, and I just, I, I really think that it all boils down to that. And so we... I, I agree with you that theology can't be left out of the conversation. And I think that we can use natural law and science as tools uh, mm -hmm. as we're bringing the truth forward. We absolutely can utilize them. So we don't only have to speak from the Bible. We can yeah. bring up science, but we shouldn't be afraid to uh, clearly show what our foundation is based on. Uh, I think that no longer can we be embarrassed that, yeah, my I, I believe that abortion is wrong ultimately because we're made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, and God says that thou shall not murder and that yeah. that has to be our foundation. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any final thoughts at all on that. Um, I, I think you've said it so well. <laughs> I'm not quite sure if I, if I can say anything to add to that. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, well, uh, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please tell everyone where they can find you and keep up with all of the amazing work that you're doing? Yeah, um, they can uh, find me on all social media platforms um, at uh, Slow to Write. Um, that's just slow, T-O, write, uh, as in writing. It's a reference to James one nineteen. Uh, which is let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. So anyway, they can find me on my social media platforms. They can also find me on my blog primarily at slowtowrite.com. And then starting this week, I don't know when this will be airing, but starting very soon, I should say, I will have a podcast uh, also, Slow to Speak, um, which makes sense. Slow to write, slow to speak. So um, that's starting um, um, at least you know this week or very, very soon. So um, yeah, that's how, that's how they can find me. Awesome. Well, I look forward to listening to your new podcast and continuing to read your articles. If you guys aren't familiar with his writing, I highly suggest going to slowtowrite.com just to see everything that he has put out there. Very wise words, as you've heard today. There's even more wisdom on his blog. So I highly suggest going there and reading uh, what he's written. So Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much. I really okay. enjoyed it too.